This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. School's out for summer, but already teachers and parents are planning for fall. For more on navigating the new normal as the pandemic recedes, I'm joined by Dr Candice Jones and Seth Daub. Well, I'm joined by Dr Candice Jones. She's a paediatrician in the Orlando area. Candice, thank you so much for coming back to Intersection. Appreciate it. Always great to be here. Thank you. And we're also joined by Seth Daub. He is the principal of Catalina Elementary School in Orlando. Seth, welcome back as well. Thank you. Appreciate you asking me back. So I want to start with um, with you, Candice, uh, Dr. Jones, and, and I want to ask, um, there's been a little bit of confusion, I guess, in the general public about the new guidance from the CDC around masks and what that means. Is this something you're fielding questions from your patients and, and their families as well? Yes. You know, every time there's a change or adjustment in recommendations, it seems it just creates a storm. And I just remind everyone that this is still very new to all of us and that as we learn more and as time goes on, we will have to make adjustments. And that's in every sector in life. And so the CDC, all the health experts, myself as a pediatrician, we try to keep abreast of everything so that we can re-inform our, my, my families, my patients about what's the latest recommendations. And so this the relaxation of the mask for vaccinated individuals is something that, you know, I had a little trepidation with because I started thinking about, okay, Uh, families, parents, adults can be vaccinated, some older kids, but then there's, you know, children like my four-year-old. Large parts of families are not vaccinated. So what is this going to do? This is going to be a little confusing maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've been fielding the question in that way. Now, what do we do? And so for me, I've decided to continue to wear my mask so that I can model um, those safety measures still for my four-year-old who still needs to be safe, still needs to wear a mask. If I Mm -hmm. all of a sudden stop, she looks at mommy and follows everything I do, then she's going to not see the seriousness of mask. And so I do it for her and we continue to um, wear them. Yeah, that's one thing I've noticed too. Um, Like kids at that age, they seem to have adopted these new regulations, which have, you know, let's face it, the notion, you know, 18 months ago that this time we would all be sort of wearing masks in public and in, uh, in those sort of settings. I mean, that would have been unheard of to most Americans, right? But, and yet here we are. And it seems like the younger kids particularly have been okay with following along with those guidelines. I know there have been some situations where, you know, kids may not be able to for one reason or another, but by and large, it seems that they've kind of adopted that message and, and taken it to heart. Absolutely. I know my daughter has. She's a mask warrior. <laughs> She's the mask police. And I have seen that with my patients. The younger children definitely follow what we do. If we teach them, we model them, we tell them why, explain it to them, they will do whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're the leaders in that regard. Um, Seth, what's your experience been? Was was that this topic of some consternation or at least conversation at the school when those new guidelines came out? And I wonder, you know, how you approach trying to walk through that message with your staff and, and parents and, and the students at Catalina Elementary as well. Sure. Um, as we know, we, we, we do follow all OCPS and CDC guidelines. And last year when, when the conversation started in regards to masks, 
I was a little nervous at first, but let me tell you, our students and our teachers, they did a great job. Um, I think as, as a society, we were so worried about students and us being the mask police, but we're really not because the students are wearing masks. They, especially our kindergartners, we were, we, were, we were worried about that, but they don't know any different. They don't know that there's school without masks because this is their first year in school. Um, so they think it's a normality. So we really mm -hmm. don't, haven't had any issues. Um, for some reason, if a student forgets their mask at home, we provide them one um, here on campus. But from what we thought might have been an obstacle has honestly really not. Uh, even our teachers, they do a great job as well um, in regards to masks. So um, it's, it's been a great, uh, it's been part of our culture for the past, for the past 179 days, because uh, tomorrow is the last day of school. And our students have done such a great job um, at having their masks on all throughout the day, um, whenever, uh, you know, they're in the building um, or they're, you know, outside and they're not able to social distance uh, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what about what may happen come fall when you, you return to campus? Um, how are you going to approach that? I know that we're still waiting on some guidelines from OCPS, but a lot of school districts have said masks will be optional, right? So what, what's your thinking as you think about the, uh, you know, the post-summer period and, and getting back to school again? Sure. So I do know that for summer school, masks are still required. Um, I do know that Orange County Public Schools, um, they're having uh, work sessions over the next couple of, of weeks, uh, and then they'll vote as a school board to decide what the plan is for the fall. And whatever, uh, whatever they do plan um, and they do decide is what we will follow uh, here at Catalina. Um, so, um, yeah, we want to make sure that everyone remains safe, and we also follow all policies and procedures through Orange County Public Schools and the CDC. When I spoke to you last, Seth, a couple of months ago, you sort of talked about the importance of communicating things, and you know that that's pretty important in any kind of crisis, right? Um, do you think that's the way forward too? You know, no matter what happens around masks or even bigger picture, thinking about vaccinations, if and when those become available for for younger children. Yeah, um, we do um, a weekly call out to our families and we always update them on anything that, that comes through Orange County Public Schools or even through our school. You know, and we always say, I end my message with, you know, stay well, make sure you have your masks every day. Um, you know, we are always following CDC guidelines and procedures on campus. And our main goal is to keep all of our students and staff safe here on campus. So we will continue to, you know, clean our campus appropriately. I, I call it fun with Lysol wipes or Clorox wipes. <laughs> we tend to have fun with it. Um, and in, in all seriousness, we started doing this um, uh, the February before uh, the pandemic hit because it was flu season. So um, I gave every uh, teacher and every grade level a, a um, canister of Lysol wipes. And I said, okay clean your doors and your desks and your whatever, because I'm a, I'm a germaphobe. So I wanted to make sure that, um, that we were ready for, for flu season. And who would have known a few months, a few weeks later, um, that we would have um, been shut down for the pandemic. So, um, we do keep a very safe building and in, in regards to that. And I'm very proud of our teachers and our students for, for taking this very seriously. Mm -hmm. Dr. Candace Jones, I want to come back to you for a moment. Talk to me a little bit about, about what you know, what we know at this point about children under the age of 12. So, uh, obviously, the vaccine vaccinations will become available to children, you know, twelve and, and up. But younger than that, like, what do we know about, you know, how susceptible children are under the age of twelve to to uh, COVID and and sort of how that all plays out? Right. So as we know right now, as you said, twelve and up Pfizer vaccine is what's approved, and I really want to stress that. Um, 
as a pediatrician, I'm aware, we're all aware of the power and importance of vaccines. Um, they, they're the thing, including everything else that has the power to stop this uh, pandemic. Um, and children make up a significant part of our population. So vaccinating them must be and is a strategy to control this virus so it cannot continue to spread. So that's number one. Um, so 12 and up with the Pfizer vaccine, and we want to encourage all families to make sure that children 12 and up are getting their vaccine. It's so easy. As soon as we got the green light, my son went that Saturday to Walgreens and got his vaccine. And he is not a fan of shots, but he was ready. <laughs> he has been home this entire pandemic. He's ready to get back to school. He's ready to um, play his sports. He's ready to just do everything. Um, and so he's looking forward to seventh grade in a school building in all of his activities and he will be fully vaccinated. So that's the most important thing I want to stress for families. Now, as far as the de-escalation of those age groups, those trials are ongoing. Um, um, with Pfizer, with Moderna, um, I think as well with the J&J &J vaccine. Um, and so they are doing the, the same due process of robust studies um, and finding out if the vaccine is safe and effective in those age groups. And from what health experts are saying, we could have um, younger ages available, um, more mid-fall, sometime in September. But that's just a guess. We just all are waiting and seeing. Um, but whatever that recommendation is, I hope that as kids 12 and up are getting it and we're seeing that it's safe, we're seeing that it's effective, it's making a difference with making school safe, for instance, um, that parents will be at that time ready for their younger children to be vaccinated as well. My four-year-old is certainly ready. She was upset that her brother got it and she couldn't get it. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, my guests are Dr. Candace Jones. She's a pediatrician in the Orlando area, also joined by Seth Dorb. He's the principal of Catalina Elementary School. We're talking about schools reopening uh, in fall and the possibility of vaccines for younger children and also the mask ordinance. Dr. Jones, too, I wanted to ask about, I guess, the, the notion of children as victors of the virus, too, because it seems like the data so far has suggested that they may not be as vulnerable to some of the more severe symptoms of, of COVID, but there has been this idea that, you know, maybe children, that part of the risk is children, even if they're not getting particularly sick themselves, they can be spreading it and passing it on. So how do you see that picture changing as as more vaccinations become available and uh, we sort of move into the next stage, you know, towards the end of this pandemic? So we know that children have far fared better than um, those at-risk adults with the pandemic. But as you said, children have gotten this virus. Children have died from this virus. Children have been um, hospitalized with this infection. Children have also, uh, they have long COVID, new Clinics are opening up at academic centers all over this nation with children suffering from long COVID. 
And, and you, you're referring to like the, the long haulers, I think I've, I've heard them called. Absolutely, call. absolutely. Mm-hmm. With symptoms of fatigue, uh, all t- sorts of symptoms, and they're not getting back to normal just as adults are suffering from long haul COVID. And so, as you also said, children can spread this virus to others. And so they are an important part of getting the vaccine and helping to end the pandemic, especially since we have a significant port of a, a portion of adults who are not are hesitant still and who don't want the vaccine. So children can also make up in those areas as well. Last time I spoke to you on this program, Seth, I mean you, you talked about reteaching some standards from past grade level because of you know kids being online and struggling with that. Uh, and and you sort of said that this is something you might kind of bake into your um, you know the way you go about things from here on out. Is, is that still your thinking? You're still thinking it's it's good to do a sort of refresher on the on the basics, pandemic or not? Absolutely. We've already I've already met with my with my leadership team for next for next year. We've already met this year to start planning for next year, um, and we are starting a week number two in regards to reteaching standards from the previous school year. So we're, uh, we're already starting to, to plan um, so we can get that started so um, we can really focus on, on the needs and the foundational skills that our students are still lacking. Dr. Jones, one other aspect or one of the other aspects of the pandemic and thinking about some of those health implications, it's not just the physical challenges and, and risks of COVID, right? It's also sort of the, the you know, social isolation and, and uh, people being cooped up at home and some of the other stresses around the pandemic you know if you know parents are out of work and that sort of adds a layer of stress as well do you see some of those things kind of alleviating a bit as we look to a resumption of of um in-person learning for everyone in the uh in the fall i i think so um the long-term effects of this pandemic on our children particularly remain to be seen. And you mentioned some of those, just their whole school year being disrupted, social isolation, um, mental health crises, uh, the financial strain in their families, the fear of getting the infection and having lost loved ones through the, um, from the infection. And so there's so much that our children have been dealing with. And so I think as we see, um, you know, get better in the pandemic as we get back to school, as we get back to our activities, especially as our children get vaccinated and we relax and say, oh, you don't have to wear your mask. Oh, you can go back to swimming. Oh, you can go back to your group sports or you can get back to school. I've personally seen that happen. I've had patients suffering with depression. I've had patients with suicidal ideations, um, stuck at home, um, doing virtual learning, not being able to play football or basketball. And this was their family decision. And I don't judge anyone's decision um, because I don't know their particular health risk. Um, But I have had this discussion with families to say it might be worth it. The benefit of, of his or her mental health might be worth it to just go back to school to just go back to football and be safe um, versus what's going on now. So absolutely, as we all work together to end this pandemic and things get better, I think it's going to make it better for all of us mentally, <laughs> physically, um, in every aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. Seth, just thinking about some of the things that you've adopted, you know, and, and you'll kind of keep going uh, from the pandemic, like lessons learned, so to speak, and you talked about the 
basic sort of 101 training that you, you'll be doing just to make sure people don't sort of experience that summer slide. But are there some other things you think you might keep going? I know that obviously Orange County Public Schools isn't offering the launch yet at home um, come the fall, but do you think there are some things that you've sort of learned and, and could adapt uh, to future classes from online learning, for for example, some things that actually worked from the uh, from the last year. Uh, absolutely, one one thing that I'm thinking of that comes to my mind is our, our communication with our parents. Um, a lot of our parents work um, some work overnight, some work you know three sometimes three four jobs, and the power that we have now not to have a parent teacher conference on a campus is so powerful. We have this online tool that we can use to have these come, which we've we've always had, but now we really know how to use it. Um, and we're going to do that from now on. Um, a parent could do a, a, a student conference on the way to work if need be. Um, so we're really meeting the needs of our parents a lot more um, in regards to having them involved in the students' learning. So we're kind of shifting of, have, of shifting from having, you know, those required quote unquote conferences, traditional conferences of what they looked like in the years ago on the school campus to now be possibly virtual in the future. So our parent communication over this past year um, ha has been wonderful and it's really helped, um, you know, uh, build relationships with our community and our teachers to do so with our with our families. So we're definitely going to keep that um, at the forefront as we move forward, 100%. Dr. Jones, I imagine there might be something similar happening in the world of medicine, right? I mean, the kind of virtual um, doctor consultation, is that something you think you'll be doing more of whether or not we, we are sort of faced with a health crisis like the one we saw in 2020. Right. I certainly hope so. You know, we, even before the pandemic, um, you know, the, the healthcare industry was looking at tele, you know, medicine visits, the ability to talk to families um, in that way for certain type of visits. And I know our practice, we were working on that, but the pandemic came full force and it made it happen. It cut all of that red tape out that was, you know, posing a challenge before and it made it possible. Now our families and, and our practice haven't totally jumped on board. They're, they were a little skeptical of the televisit, but it certainly has helped um, in certain situations, and it certainly is a wonderful tool for certain types of visits. You know, as doctors, we like to see and touch, <laughs> you know, to make a full diagnosis, but in certain type of visits, it's absolutely wonderful, um, and I, I hope and I really think that's going to continue. Mm -hmm. Just finally, uh, I wanted to ask you both, what are you looking forward to over the summer? Maybe a, a bit of a break from the craziness of 2020. Um, Dr. Jones, what are you kind of anticipating? What, what does the summer look like for you? Um, well, we have um, two vacations that we're planning coming up soon um, in June, early part of June. We're going to uh, head to, we're going to do a, a Pacific Coast Highway Drive. Last year, um, in the summer, we did uh, out west. We drove out and, you know, did like Mount Rushmore and Grand Canyon and stuff like that. And for us, that was a safe way to just stay with our core family and be an outdoor um, space. So we're going to do that again um, and looking forward to We really had a fun trip and did not come back with COVID, so you can do it totally safely. Um and then later in the summer, before school starts back, we're going to take a flight, um, quick flight to Puerto Rico. So that's going to be something that I'm going to navigate because of my daughter. Uh, that's the first time we've flown since the pandemic. Um, and so there'll be some special things that I try to make sure she's safe. 
Seth, what does the summer look like for you? Um, in all honesty, uh, professional, um, getting ready for the fall, um, but I'm going to uh, two, uh, two conferences this summer that are going to be face-to-face. One is our state conference for the uh, Florida Association of School Administrators, where I'm currently president, and um, that'll be in June. However, we are following all CDC guidelines uh, in regards to the conference. And then I'll be going to Chicago for our national conference, uh, National Association of Elementary School Principals. Um, and yeah, just trying to, um, in between that, rest a little bit um, and, and get my, you know, my mind ready for the fall, as I would do every summer. But I'm really looking forward to next year. I really am. I'm looking forward to, you know, bringing even more students back on campus. I'm looking forward to um, hopefully if we're allowed to have um, more events with families back on campus, which I think possibly will happen. Um, I'm looking forward to to seeing our community kind of come back together and uh, continue to do what's best for kids. Well, Seth Daub is the principal of Catalina Elementary School. Seth, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And Dr. Candace Jones, pediatrician. uh, Always great to talk to you, Dr. Jones. Thank you so much as well. Thank you. Up next, finding work in the post-pandemic economy. A conversation with Alexis Echeverria of Career Source Central Florida and State Representative Ana Eskamani. That's when we return. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Businesses are looking for employees, so what are the next steps for Floridians seeking to get back into the job market? I talked with Alexis Echeverria, he's the Director of Operations for Career Source Central Florida, and State Representative Ana Eskamani about what the new economy looks like and what's changed on the employment front since 2020. Alexis, kind of thinking back to how things were soon after the start of the pandemic, did you find that was there an uptick in, in people seeking help from career source and can you quantify that or is it is it still too sort of soon to, to look at some of those data uh no we we absolutely have seen an uptick in in helping uh folks and people reaching out to us you know to date um our fiscal year starts july 1st and we've helped more than forty-seven thousand people um in some type of um Kind of services, whether it's directing, directly connecting them with employment or uh, sponsoring training, as an example. We've also served over two and a half thousand businesses within that same time frame. Um, specifically, in sponsoring training, we've we've served more than five thousand people. So what we saw was that individuals who were furloughed or they lost their job through the pandemic, they they were very smart. They took advantage of the time that they had available and sought to better themselves and make themselves more marketable by seeking out opportunities and training and upskilling. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to that um, that issue of federal unemployment benefits being dropped. Um, Anna, you know, Florida, one of the states, saying we're we're going to to drop them, and I think the rationale is that let's use this as an incentive to see more people looking for work rather than relying on unemployment benefits. How does that tally with what you're hearing from your constituents? Well, it's not an incentive to take away benefits. It's punishment. And I'm not one that believes in punishing Floridians who are already on the ground trying to get themselves back up. The The population of folks that we see who are unemployed today vary in their challenges. We have folks who are seniors um, today, one of my 68-year-old constituents, she used to work part-time at the Performing Arts Center 
when the Broadway shows came in. She has social security, but is reliant on these benefits to also keep her afloat while she waits for her job to get back. And as a 68 year old woman, she's unable to work in the service economy. She doesn't have the ability to, to re quickly retrain herself and make herself marketable in this, the current sectors that are looking for jobs. And she can't be on her feet for that long. So um, we have several cases of seniors who are not going to survive with these benefits being removed. Then we have folks that cannot afford to take a pay cut. This is a very real problem, especially in the hospitality industry where we have many Floridians who were managers in that sector. They made a decent wage in more of a executive level, um, not to the point of C-suite, but managed staff and did pretty well in the tourism economy. If they look for a job right now in the current market with their with skills they have today, they're potentially gonna take a pay cut from all the years of work they put into their career path and they're worried about that. And they're worried that if they take that pay cut, they cannot afford to pay their bills on time with the current quality of life standards that they have for themselves and their children. And then of course you have folks with vac with a COVID-19 hesitancy still. And I'm very hopeful that as more and more Floridians become fully vaccinated, um, those concerns will be eliminated. But the, the governor's decision to do this, it seems more politically motivated to me. We're seeing other Republican states do this. It seems more like a contrast to the Biden administration um, versus a policy decision based on evidence. Mm -hmm. There's also, I guess, the issue of school returning to completely in class, right? I mean, um, do you think that factors in or can that is that going to be a factor in people's ability to to find work uh, come the fall when, when uh, you know, classes are back in, in full swing? Absolutely, Matt, it will. But we have to remember that before we get back to in-classroom teachings will be the summer where there is no school. So we're literally taking away benefits from people as children will be coming back home. And these are families that cannot afford childcare, let alone summer camp. So we're going to make their, their job search even more difficult by taking away these benefits right before summer, uh, right in the middle of hurricane season, it's going to be even more difficult for folks to get back on their feet when they have all these other responsibilities to take care of. Mm -hmm. Alexis, um, the work search requirement waiver too, that ends May 29th. Uh, people will have to show they're actively looking for work. Um, are you expecting to see some, uh, you know, is that going to have an impact on, on who you are seeing uh, reach out to, Career Source Central Florida for help or, or, you know, how people go about looking for work? Absolutely, Matt. Um, we've, we've been proactive from that standpoint because we, we knew this was going to happen at some point. Um, so what we've done, again, from a proactive measure is we've offered more services in person uh, for those individuals in the community who don't have the access to the use of a computer or internet or those basic um, tools that are needed uh, to not only apply for the unemployment benefits, but to also do job search um, and, and be referred to, to jobs that are out in, in, in the community. So uh, we've increased the capacity of our in-person uh, services, and now um, the community can come in in a walk-in basis. It's still limited as to how many people uh, can come in. You know, we have some controls in place, but we are now offering um, self-service walk-in um, availability for each of our locations. Are you starting to see more demand for that, or are, are there more people actually showing up to the office in person? 
Uh, we are, yes, yes. We've, we've seen a significant increase as the word starts to spread that, um, that these services are being provided. We are seeing an increase. And Matt, if I could just add to that real quick too, because our office, since we've been open um, really since the end of last year, and we get walk-ups all the time of folks who need help just filling out their unemployment benefits because, they, like Alexis said, they don't have a computer. And we've also been doing our part to educate Floridians on what the works requirement looks like because the reality is that most Floridians are looking for work. They just haven't followed the bureaucratic steps established within the unemployment system to prove that. And so um, the transition is going to be very challenging for a few reasons. One is just the technology concerns. Um, the Connect system has still not been upgraded. Uh, in the legislative budget, we did allocate dollars to start that process to move Connect into a cloud-based server. But right now, it still is the same system that we've had for the past year, and it doesn't work very well. So there are concerns about just technology gaps in a person's ability to get through the process of doing the work search. But also, this will be the first time in Florida that self-employed people conduct the work search. And it's going to be a very interesting evolution for us to adapt to because a self-employed person doesn't necessarily look for work in the same way that a W-2 worker would. For example, we have photographers who would do weddings and different types of events they're going to do the work search as well. And so we've been seeking clarity from DO. You know, if they pitch themselves to different hotels to be on their vendor list, can that count as doing the work search? So we're actively trying to find the adaptable solutions for every type of person who is in this workforce looking for that next job. I guess there are questions too. I mean, thinking about people maybe not going through the bureaucratic steps, as you say, um, Anna, that, that are necessary to kind of show up in the system. Uh, and if you look at the April DO report, it does show a pretty big dip in unemployment rates since this time, 2020. But do you think the numbers accurately reflect, you know, who's actually out there looking for work or who's unemployed, you know, compared to what we saw last year? It doesn't. I mean, the reality is that there are folks who've just given up when it comes to applying for benefits because they never could get through. Um, so you have a workforce that just doesn't exist in those numbers. And at the same time, again, we have to remember that Florida has a very low eligibility rate when it comes to unemployment, who actually benefits. You know, Before the pandemic, that percentage was 9%, which means that only 9% of unemployed Floridians even qualify for benefits because of how narrow the state defines eligibility. If it wasn't for the federal programs, a PUA, which is the, pen, the, the pandemic program for self-employed and folks who are ineligible for regular unemployment compensation, we would have a much bigger economic disaster on our hands because of the number of folks who would have no benefits whatsoever. Alexis, um, thinking about that, though, I mean, obviously last year was a disaster for a lot of people, right? And there are still a lot of industries that haven't completely recovered and may take a while to do that. But what's your assessment of, of where we're at now? Are we are we kind of writing the ship a little bit or is are things kind of returning to some sort of normal when it comes to the number of people out of work, the number of people looking for jobs and the people who are, you're able to help connect with employment? Yeah, I think uh, representative Eskamani uh, did a really good job of explaining, you know, what's going on right now in, in, in this community. Um, we're definitely seeing the demand for talent um, from the business side, uh, but there are still many different barriers um, that don't allow the, the average individual to commit to employment. And, you know, childcare is one of those, um, you know, 
the representative um, mentioned the return uh, or, or the ending of school. It's happening, you know, we're, we're right upon summer school. So those are all real life things that we're helping our, our customers and our community um, deal with connecting them with other agencies that can provide some support so then they can get the necessary assistance to return to work. What's your advice then to somebody who's been out of work for a while and, uh, you know, now they're in a position where they can get out there again and start looking for work. What would you say that some of the first tips to take are? Um, you know, the first thing is, is give us a call. You know, give us a call. Uh, visit our website. We have so many resources um, available. I, I, you know, we're the best kept secret out in the community. Um, there's so, you know, our portfolio of business relationships that we have where we can connect folks with those businesses that are immediately looking for talent is, is so extensive. Um, and there's a service that we can provide for anybody, no matter what um, you know, your skill set is, what your education level is, we customize the services for every individual. And, and it's a case-by-case -case basis. So um, you know, I, I welcome everyone to give us a call. Our number is 1-800-757-4598 or you can visit our website at careersourcecentralflorida.com. Um, and whether it's an in-person service or a virtual service, we have a service for everyone. Uh, Representative Arnaris Kamani, are you anticipating or have you seen um, kind of calls start to taper off a little bit? Uh, now we're you know, sort of heading towards the end of this, this pandemic and potentially the, the economic recession that came along with it. Unfortunately, our office continues to be flooded with phone calls, and I, I assume it's because a lot of other lawmakers just are not helping when it comes to unemployment in the same way that we are. So we attract phone calls, like I said earlier, from across the state. And, and actually, we've seen uptick in local folks who are calling us with problems with their unemployment accounts. And of course, a lot of fear and a lot of panic around the federal benefits uh, being taken away. So we actually got over 40 phone calls in one day, which is pretty huge for a state house office with two staff um, for us to manage. And so we work overtime to provide whatever support we can. And I've dipped into my own pocket um, to help pay for people's bills from across the state because I do realize that someone being denied their benefits or being delayed with their benefits is the difference between having a roof over your head and not. The difference between putting food on the table for your kids or not. So we're very much focused on the preventative nature of this and trying to help people before they fall. And of course, getting folks back into the workforce, but realizing that it's just not as black and white as some politicians want you to think it is. It is very complex to get back into a new economy. And I say new economy because it's not like we're just pressing play from last year. The The workforce, the work demands are very different. You know, we Yes, we saw the hospitality industry um, go through some deep pains throughout the pandemic, but when it came to the Amazons of the world, they stacked up. You know, they got bigger. They hired a lot of folks, and now it really is a buyer's market that when a worker is making decisions of where they want to go, if there's jobs that are offering a better salary and better benefits, they're going to be more attracted to that than some of the jobs that are kind of maintaining the same um, status and the same benefits as they did before the pandemic. We've been speaking with State Representative Anna Eskamani. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And we're also joined by Alexis Echeverria. He's the Director of Operations at CareerSource Central Florida. Alexis, thank you as well. Matt, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you. Up next, passenger numbers are ticking up again at Orlando International Airport. CEO Phil Brown reflects on lessons learned from the pandemic. We're back in a minute. 
This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Orlando International Airport's passenger traffic is starting to pick up again. In fact, the airport says it's Memorial Day weekend traffic is expected to be not far off where it was in 2019. And that's a far cry from this time last year when passenger traffic had virtually ground to a halt. Phil Brown, CEO of the Greater Orlando Aviation Authority, announced not too long ago that he's stepping down, though he'll stay on in the job until the board hires a new CEO. He also wants to see the South Terminal through to completion. I spoke to Brown about the challenge of keeping Florida's busiest airport running during a pandemic. He compared the recession and its impact on tourism and travel to the impact of 9-11. For right, I know the, the word unprecedented has been thrown around quite a bit, but it's it's a pretty different situation when people aren't flying not only because they don't have money in their pockets to to take a trip, but also because they're afraid of what's out there, right? And there's genuine kind of security fears or, or fears of a disease. So that is a pretty unique situation to have to, to fight your way through. It was different in that respect. And I think it was probably, in my view, now I wasn't here in, in 9-11, but I was, a, I mean, I was in the, working in the private sector and so I was traveling quite a bit. Uh, so I saw the repercussions of that, but it's this is entirely different because um, it was really a health issue and not so much a terrorist issue. So there were going to be far-reaching consequences, and and you really didn't know how this pandemic was going to be brought under control because it started to rage at one point, and then I think. Once we started to get the data and the health officials started to give us information, we were able to chart a path forward. But it, this similar, but not the same to 9-11, this will change the way the aviation industry operates. I think we'll be much more conscious about health issues and you know the volume of air and aircraft, the cleanliness of facilities, I think for a period of time, you're still going to be wearing masks uh, until there is a, you know, a generally uh, uh, most of the, the folks are vaccinated. And you know better than I do because you cover it every day that there's a whole vaccine hesitancy issue out there that that um, may delay what would ordinarily be, uh, you know, a call to go out and get vaccinations. I think the the health officials and the government officials locally are doing everything they can to make sure that vaccines are available. I mean, you, if you go to the French Festival this weekend, you can get vaccinated. And that's going to have to continue because I go back to the, the, the my original notion. It's the safety and security. Those are the fundamentals that are going to be needed in order to instill confidence in visitors to come to Orlando. And, you know, as the, the CEO of a, of a big and busy and getting busier airport, um, you're kind of in a unique position when you're looking at something like a, a pandemic that, that, you know, spreads globally, right? I mean, this is sort of one of the, the, the nexuses by which the virus spreads. So that also puts a level, extra level of, um, I don't know, responsibility, I suppose, on sort of how to, how to move forward carefully, right? Yeah, we focused on that early on. Um because we knew that there was going to be concern with people traveling is, am I going to be able to contract the infection at an airport? So to their credit, our maintenance people and our operations people really started to focus on that. We got engaged with the, the Global Bio-Risk Advisory Council, to, which was a, a, a widely recognized authority, went through their accreditation process 
we're always looking at ways that we can uh, improve the cleanliness of the airport as we learn more about the transmissibility and the profile of the virus you have to look at things like airflow and ways that you can increase the airflow as well as any technological uh, aspects such as uh, ultraviolet radiation in in the air ducts cleanliness of the touch high high uh, touch points of the airport um, and and basically just the, the the protocols that you need to to enact in order to reduce the level of transmissibility so that's something that we will continue to do and i don't think that changes even with the pandemic to my point earlier the virus is still there so you still need to exercise that that diligence in, in your cleaning regimen if you're just joining me my guest is phil brown he is the ceo of the greater orlando aviation authority thinking about that too i mean do you feel like the airport now has some kind of tools for future proofing against future pandemics i mean one of the things when you look at how the airport makes money and stays viable is cargo right and i know there's been some i think changes brought about by the pandemic is is realizing that you can't be as reliant maybe on passenger traffic um and and thinking more about um bringing in more cargo so is that a sort of a permanent change going forward yeah i think that's one of the areas that we've looked at uh, we do have cargo most of our cargo comes in in the belly of the aircraft so it ends up being a function of how many passenger flights you have so one of the things that we started to look at was the all freighter types of cargo um, we've seen an uptick in in those types predominantly fedex uh, ups mm-hmm. yeah i feel like i'm seeing more of those kind of you know, I live fairly close to the flight path. I feel like I'm seeing more FedEx planes uh, track into the airport these days. Well, you are, and I think FedEx is taking it. I mean, I think they're stepping back and looking at the way they do business as well because we've had some conversations with them. But you probably have seen uh, this, these the red and white airplanes that are Kalita Air, which is a contractor for Amazon. So we've seen those. There are other... Uh, all freighter, what we call all freighter aircraft, that um, we'll continue to look at that, but that's going to take a little bit more level of investment. What we do have at the airport, so the overall focus, I think, is on diversifying revenue streams. And as you said, not we're predominantly leisure, it's predominantly uh, passenger traffic, but there are other things that we can do to broaden um, the the revenues that we have are diversify the revenues, um, maintenance facilities on the airport. Um, that that's another one of the things that we're looking at. We have two maintenance uh, facilities that United runs. There's uh, there are other third party aircraft maintainers uh, in the industry jargon. They're called MROs, which is uh, a maintenance and repair operations. Um, so there is there are some uh, potentially uh, uh, potential opportunities there simply because uh, we have a lot of land, which is uh, the, the result of some foresight from our predecessors to acquire the land. We've got more land than any other airport in, in the state in terms of the ability to expand and, and put facilities on. So those are the things that that we're looking at going forward that we need to 
broaden our effort on so that we have uh, we can guard against uh, another downturn and whether it's a pandemic or whether it's a recession we know historically those things come in cycles uh, you don't know precisely when they're coming but you need to have a plan in place to to guard against that and at least uh, protect your your revenue stream to the the extent you can so uh, that's also the reason that we're uh, talking to UCF because there's some some interesting possibilities in collaborating with them on identifying companies that may benefit from access to airfield and uh, the fact that we have land that they could put manufacturing or some kind of production facilities. Mm -hmm. um, and then thinking about ground transportation too, of course, uh, there's the, the train station, which is part of that new terminal. And at some point in the fairly near future, the, um, the high-speed rail or higher-speed rail from, from South Florida will connect into that. How much of a game changer is that going to be for the airport, having that extra sort of node of transportation? I think it'll be important longer term when when it's up and operational. Uh, and it's not a, a a new concept because if you go to Europe, you you just virtually any airport you fly into in Europe, there are access to train stations and train operations. And I think it's been a long time coming. It also helps. I think overall and the environmental and the sustainability aspect, because one of the things, and you've been here in Florida for a while, and you know we all love to drive our own cars, right? Well, there's there's not enough road capacity to accommodate the growth that we're seeing in the population. Uh, and then you look, you combine that with the combustible engines and, and fossil fuels, there, there are ways that you can diminish that and, you know, trains are one of those aspects um, and frankly it's uh, uh, having that connectivity and that's what at least in our industry it's all about is improving the connectivity so people can travel as seamlessly as possible so having that opportunity at the airport for people to fly in and move about the state as they want uh, that if, you, if you're at the hub of that, you benefit from that. So it's to that degree, it's a little bit self-serving, but it's also good for the overall mobility in the state. I know you've still got some, some months ahead of you, but what would be your advice to whoever takes this job next? I think you have to be adaptable. That's the one thing that this industry will teach you very quickly. If you're not adaptable, you're going to have a hard time being successful. And so what that means is that you have to do, at least in my perspective, you have to do a lot more listening than talking. Uh, because the key to being adaptable is understanding how things are changing and they're constantly changing. And I, I've seen it over the last 11 years, going from one recession to a pandemic recession. Um, the industry is changing. Uh, people's and what we've seen in the pandemic is that's been a major accelerator for technology uh, because the preference for people now having gone through this is if i'm going to fly i want to be the safest way let's fly the safest way i can and a lot of times that means i don't necessarily want to come into contact with a lot of people but if i do i want to have you know the 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 equipment and the safety precautions in place to protect me.
coming through an airport. We're going to be focusing and have continued to focus on touchless processing. Uh, that's a lot of what we're looking at in the South Terminal. Um, and we're going to continue to do that as it evolves because uh, uh, the other thing that we've learned is that everything runs on a chip these days, uh, which is why it's it's pretty important that we figure out as a as a nation how to get those uh, chips back into the manufacturing because it's uh, that that'll be a disruptor. But that's that's really technology is the key to to the airports. It's not only in aviation and airlines with all the the avionics that are in cockpits now, but just walking through the airport. You know, when you first came here, however long ago. I don't know if you were in the age when you had to have a paper ticket. Um, that would have been 2010. So, yeah, I guess it was kind of on the cusp. On the cusp. Well, I don't think you have paper tickets anymore if you're flying. I mean, you've got it on your phone, right? Right. You've got it. And that's the way a lot of people are. So um, that's. Those are the kinds of things you have to be adaptable. You have to be looking at opportunities uh, for change, for improving the processing um, for passengers. This is a a people business running an airport. If you're going to be successful, uh, particularly in an environment where we're viewed as a community asset, but the reason that it's important for us is that Central Florida's economy is built on the concept of hospitality. Um, and, and we have to be, we're at the first impression, we're the last impression. We all have to be focused on that. Well, Phil Brown, uh, CEO of the Greater Orlando Aviation Authority, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this show from our intern, Brittany Caldwell. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived episodes of Intersection on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.